Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, just an observation before I begin. It's, uh, you know, at Cornerstone, one of the things we're trying to revive is multi-generational Christianity. Meaning, when you get to be my age, if your kids don't love Jesus, you're not going to be too happy with yourself. Okay? Is that fair? It's a big deal to us that our children grow up to be adults who have their own faith and their own relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a big deal to us, and that's something that is a church family we're going to constantly work for, right? 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 Okay, just want to be sure you're with me. Uh, it's not cool if your kids walk away from their faith, and we're going to do everything possible to make sure that your kids, when they get your age, have their kids in a relationship with the Lord in church worshiping together. Uh, a lot of things were happening just as they were leading worship. I was just thinking, okay, this guy's the son-in-law of a missionary. <clears throat> this guy's the son of a Wesleyan pastor. This girl's the daughter of an independent fundamental pastor. This guy's raised Pentecostal. This guy grew up at Cornerstone. This guy's our, my own disciple. Uh, this guy and this gal are brother and sister-in-law representing two parts of the same family. You've got a husband and wife up here at the same time leading worship. You've got a girl this morning singing right here in the middle for the first time is one of our praise kids who's now leading worship in the adult worship service. Now that's a big deal to us. That's, that's a microcosm of this right here. So if you're new at Cornerstone, you're like, hey, I wonder what this is all about. That's a little good snapshot of what it's all about. Uh, we have a lot of people from a lot of different religious backgrounds coming together because we're united by one thing. We all believe in the gospel. We all believe in the Trinity. We all believe in the same uh, salvation and the same Jesus Christ. And some of the non-essentials, we've learned to have liberty on those things. Okay? One of the things that uh, we, we taught this to our Mexican uh, pastors this past week. On the essentials, we have to have unity. And when I mean essentials, I mean the gospel. We have to have unity as a church. It's what holds us together. But on the non-essentials, we have to have liberty. We have to have liberty. If it's not a salvation matter, you've got liberty in Christ to make some decisions there. Okay? But in all things, love. In all things, we're going to show love to one another. All right, here we go. Let's get to Samson and Delilah. And let me, if you weren't here for the... Uh, sermon that I preached a few weeks ago. You can always go back and get it. Let me give you a quick overview of where we are. We are God's people. The Bible is a story about God's people. In the Old Testament, they're called Israel. In the New Testament, there's a new Israel, which is both Jew and Gentile, and it's not about uh, genealogy. It's not about DNA. It's about being born again and adopted into the family of God. You are the new Israel. You are God's people. Let me say it another way. When you're reading the Bible story and you're looking at the New Testament, the church here in Fort Worth, Texas, the way this should be played out is we are the good guys. God's people are the good guys. They are the ones who build hospitals and orphanages. They are the ones who try to raise the standards of living. They are the ones who try to do unto others as they would have them do unto you. They are the ones who are supposed to be loving their neighbor as themselves. You are light. You are salt. You are living a resurrected life in Jesus Christ. Having received Christ 
the Holy Spirit lives in you. He's regenerating you day by day, transforming you to be like Jesus Christ. You're living, you're buried in the likeness of his death, and you've been raised to walk in a new life in Jesus Christ. We are the good guys. But what happens when the good guys don't live by faith? Because we all know this is a possibility. We all know this is a reality. Not, not everybody who is God's people does the right thing. And we can make it very personal, and we will before the sermon's over. We don't always do the right thing. We, you and me, don't always do the right thing. So what in the world are we going to do, and what's the world going to do? Let me make it very personal. What's our community going to do if God's people don't live by faith? By the way, let me pause the sermon for a minute. Samson, I'm sorry you're getting beat up by the congregation these days, named after a Canaanite god and, you know, a rebel and a whoremonger and everything we're about to talk about. Y'all don't beat Samson up. Uh, the name Samson means sunshine. And I would say, if you know Samson, he lives up to his name. What a delightful human being he is. Uh, now, let me get back to my story. We're the good guys. But what happens when the good guys don't live like good guys? What happens when the good guys do bad things? And we say it another way because this is really what the book of Judges is about. What happens when God's people are indistinguishable from those who are not God's people? Let's bring this up to our what, what happens when you at school are no different than any unsaved kid? Or what happens when you at work are no different than any other unsaved person at work? Or what happens in our community when we are just like anyone who is a pagan in our own community? And that's really what the stories in the book of Judges are about. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, where you have this, what's called the Hall of Faith, or the Heroes of Faith, what the book of Hebrews is, is the book is a sermon. The whole book, it's a sermon on faith. And so whoever, and we don't know exactly, could be Luke, it could be Barnabas, it could be Paul, whoever's writing the book of Hebrews has written a beautiful sermon on faith. And they've talked about how... how much greater Jesus is than any other thing and when they get right into the middle of the sermon the the preacher talking about faith says let me give you some Old Testament examples and then he goes right back to the Old Testament he says and here's how Noah did something by faith and here's how Abraham did something by faith and here's how Sarah had faith when she was even an old woman to be able to conceive a child and here's how Jacob had faith and he just starts going through these Old Testament Bible characters listen now when I read a piece of the sermon and what shall what more shall I say I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets and you feel like in your heart he's saying and I could go on and on and on and on who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice and gained what was promised he said now if I wanted to let my sermon go on forever I could just keep going through the whole Bible and the Old Testament was the only Bible they had at that point I could just keep going through the Old Testament and I could talk about every Bible character and I could show you how even though they're incredibly flawed people they all have some common thing and the common thing they have is faith that's why they're part of the story of God's 
people. Now, here's what the preacher is not saying. And I think it's careful to reiterate this many times to us. The preacher is not saying that these people are role models in every aspect of their life. I feel like this is a problem that Christianity has. Christianity has a problem where it will not admit that pastors have flaws. It has a problem where it cannot admit that male heads of house sometimes get it wrong and need to say, I'm sorry, I made a bad decision, I didn't do, do right here, and correct the thing. Uh, Christianity has a bit of a problem where we can't accept that sometimes good people do bad things. And that has to be repented of, and it has to be made right, and then you move forward together in faith again. Now, the story that's being told by the Bible preacher here in Hebrews is like, see the faith of these guys? He's not saying emulate everything these people did because these people did some horrible things. As a matter of fact, right where he's pulling all of the examples for his sermon, these people are not role models in every aspect of their life. It's their faith we are being challenged to emulate. Have faith in God Listen to God's word, obey, uh, respond to God's word, do that part of their faith. We are not told to practice their aberrant behavior. You say, well, what's aberrant? The whole mess is aberrant over there. You start reading through the Old Testament, you're going to find all kinds of dysfunction. So what I'm saying to you is here's where Christianity's got it wrong. Christianity has tried to take patriarchy and hold on to that as a model for the New Testament church. If you don't understand what patriarchy is, it's male rule. That's what's broken about the Old Testament, not what's good about the Old Testament. And the Bible's not saying, hey, overlay that onto the New Testament church now. Overlay that onto your faith. Rule with a rod of iron, you men. And treat these women like property and keep them in their place. No, that's what's broken about the Old Testament, not what's right about it. The Bible is not saying practice polygamy. Almost all of these marriages in the Old Testament involve polygamy. Do not repeat that. That is not the path to happiness. If the Old Testament tells you anything, it tells you that polygamy is the pathway to destructive relationships. Not a happy marriage in the Old Testament. Just fighting and bickering and favoritism. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> they had a thing uh, called primogeniture. Primogeniture is treating some children different than other children. And especially in the Old Testament, the firstborn. Firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. Firstborn was treated like a little king in, in the making of the family. It tied into that patriarchal system very nicely. Listen, we believe that polygamy and patriarchy and primogenitor are things of a, pay, a past a broken model of society and that Christianity has brought us to a whole new place in the world and you should not repeat those old things. We find them repulsive. Now here's the problem we have. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Samson, and Gideon, Jephthah did some repulsive things. So therefore they are completely repulsive human beings. You see our problem? We have to be able to allow that your dad was a good person, a man of faith, who made some mistakes. 
And that's okay for both things to be true. It's okay that your mom is a wonderful person, but maybe wasn't a great mother. Don't repeat her parenting style. But it doesn't mean you have to hate on her for the rest of your life. We have to learn how to parse some things out as mature adult believers now. We're not in Sunday school now. This is big church now. Where big people use their thinking brains and apply scripture correctly. And when you look at people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, all of these people, I can show you their glaring error, and I will in just a minute. But I want you to know there is also some element of faith and godliness in these people because they're being upheld as part of the story of God, people of God. So I just want you to wrestle with that a little bit. Uh, people are not all good and all bad. They're a mixture. They're a mixture. And hopefully as you mature in Christ, the Holy Spirit's adjusting that mixture. And you begin to be more righteous and less evil or less sinful, however you want to say that, it's probably a better way, less sinful and more righteous as you mature in Christ. But let's don't just shun completely when we see some problems in people's lives. Among the people who are in the book of Judges, uh, and by the way, Judges doesn't mean a black robe and a gavel in the, when you read this in the Bible context. Judges in the Bible context is a deliverer. So if you use the word deliverer in English, you'll have it really a good picture in your mind. God raised up a judge. It didn't mean they, somebody went to law school. It means he raised up a deliverer, and that deliverer is going to go engage in battle against the enemies uh, of God's people. They had to go to battle with foreign powers. Now, hear what I'm saying. A judge is called by God and raised up to deliver God's people, the nation of Israel, by calling that judge to lead the people of God to battle with God's enemies. Are we real clear on that now? If you're a judge, you're called to battle. We're all clear on that. Okay. So if you're called to be a judge and you don't battle God's enemies, that'd be a problem, wouldn't it? And that's the problem with Samson this morning. You see, the foreign invaders are not the real issue. The reason the foreign invaders are invading is because God <laughs> took his hands of protection off for a few minutes and said, well, if my own people are going after idols and they're no different than the world, I'll let the foreign invaders come in. You see, the foreign invaders are not the real problem. The real problem are God's people. The real problem in America is not it's not all the, you know, things that people get on their soapbox and rant and rave about and the, the this community and the that community and this sin and that sin. Listen, the people that are responsible for America's spiritual health are God's people. God's people need a revival. God's people need a reformation. The problem in America is that God's people are virtually indistinguishable from the rest of the people. There is no difference in behavior, no difference in morality, there's no difference in parenting, there's no difference in marriage, there's no difference in lifestyle, there's no difference in priority, there's no difference in testimony, there's no difference in witness, and that is the problem. And God's people are being called to be different. Now, not weirdos, not nut jobs, not crazies. I see them in our community too, and maybe I was one of them at a point. Maybe I still am, I don't know. But God's not calling you to be a weirdo. He's calling you to be salt and light. 
He's calling you to have a beautiful and attractive life like Jesus had that was so compelling people couldn't resist hearing what he had to say. Now, God is determined to have a people who will be those people. This is the story of the Bible. And because God has promised that through his people, he will bring a Savior who will make this mess all right. He will get it all fixed up, okay? Well, that person is coming through God's people, so here's what I know. God's people can't fail. They just can't. It's just, it cannot happen. God has to work with a very flawed people, a very broken people at times, because God refuses to quit on this human project. God refuses to quit on his people, even when his people quit on him. Now, that may be your condition this morning. You may have checked out on God a little bit. You may even not believe there is a God, but I want you to know God believes there's a you. And God hadn't given up on you. And he's still pursuing you, whether you're pursuing him or not. He wants you to be in a covenant relationship with him. In the Old Testament, God's people had become socially and spiritually dysfunctional. So God raises up a judge. Things get right during his lifetime. He or she dies. People go back to their own ways. God raises up another judge. You're right in the middle of that story now. God has raised up a judge. He is a Nazarite, has a special vow uh, from conception. And God has protected his life. And his parents have brought him up in, in, in a good home. And now Samson is doing his ministry. He's operating his judgeship. But it looks very bizarre. It doesn't look like he's fighting God's battles. It looks like he's taking the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of God and he's exercising it all for his own personal grudges. He has power. There's no joke about that. He has the power of more than a thousand men he killed at one time. I mean, he's a, he can't be defeated, essentially. He has the power of God upon his life in a bizarre way. I mean, he's like a superhero. I mean, he is like, they can't get him. And nobody knows the secret of his strength but he and his parents. And, uh, and he's, yeah, he's defeating the Philistines, but it's a very grudge match personal thing. He has not rallied the people of God to go to war and push the pagans out of the land in a national battle. It's very personal and it's very erratic. Now, you've seen that already, and that brings us to the last part of our story where Samson, with all of this potential, seems to always be living below his potential. Judges 16, verse number 1. One day, Samson went to Gaza. Let me pause right there. Gaza is not in Israel territory. Gaza is in enemy territory. You say, what is Samson doing, Israel's deliverer, doing in enemy territory? Is he there to push the pagans back? One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. Well, it doesn't sound like he's there to fight a battle. Okay? Well, the author of Judges is a literary genius. Just with a few words can paint a whole picture. Samson goes to the enemy territory not to be the deliverer. He goes to the enemy territory to fraternize with the enemy. And there in the enemy territory, he saw a prostitute. And he went in to spend the night with her. And the people of Gaza, the Philistines, this is the enemies, were told, Samson's here. Samson's here. So the brothel with the prostitute. Yeah, that's him. I know him. I, I didn't recognize that guy anywhere. 
killed a thousand of our people a few years ago, did this, did that. That's the guy who burned all the fields with the fox and the coyotes. Remember that? Destroyed our economy. That's the guy. He's over there right now. He's here. And they surrounded the place and they lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, this guy's a cold-blooded killer. Now, it'd be dangerous to try to get him in the night. Let's wait till the sun comes up. At least we can see what we're doing. Let's wait till dawn and at dawn we'll kill him. Verse 3. But Samson lay there with the prostitute only until the middle of the night. And then he got up in the middle of the night and he took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and he tore them loose, bar and all. Now I want to paint a picture in your mind. These are walled stone cities. They have wooden gates, uh, doors that are tall. You should imagine some doors that are 12 feet tall here, okay? Twice as tall as my hand right now. And one door is about this big and another door is about this big, double doors. And the doors are, have giant posts inset into the stone wall of the city. And the doors are that tall. And I want you to imagine the wood on the doors is about six inches thick. And if you've traveled to Europe and seen a castle or any of these kind of structures, you know what kind of doors I'm talking about now. These are doors, all right? And there's a bar on the inside. And you put the bar in the door. And the doors can't be opened. And, and you'd have to take a battering ram to break that bar and an army of men. Samson got up in the middle of the night. Sees the people there lying wait to get him. And he grabs the two doors of the city and rips them out of the stone wall. And have you ever tried to pull your fence posts up? Anybody ever wrestle with that for a Saturday? What a beating that is, right? You got blisters to prove it. You wear Samson when you need him, right? Uh, just boink, boink, pull them out like toothpicks out of a baked cake, you know? Uh, Samson grabs the doors, grabs the, the pillars that hold them into the wall, bar and all, rips them loose from the concrete wall, flips them up onto his back like you had put a, you know, a bag of uh, mulch from Home Depot up onto your shoulder, and he marches the gates miles and miles away to the highest hill and plants them into the dirt like Stonehenge. You got a picture in your mind? Let me finish reading now. But Samson lay there till the middle of the night. He got up and took the doors and the city gate together with the posts and tore them loose, bar and all, lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. You say, man, what a, what a beast. Yeah, but what was he doing there? You're not fighting God's battles. What a show of strength. Yeah, you got it. Escaped the assassins. Yes, he did. What the heck was he doing there? He was down there with the Philistine prostitute. Exactly. You're called to be God's deliverer. What are you doing, man? Look in the mirror and get an appraisal of your life. Let me see if I can try to make sense of some of what you're reading. Samson judged Israel for 20 years, we're told in the text. Clearly, Samson is getting on to his late 30s or 40s by now. Just for fun argument, let's just say he's 40 years of age. He's 40 years old. And he still hasn't grown up. He's 40 years old. He's still the same old self-centered, egotistical guy that he was when the story began a long time ago. 
the guy making wagers and killing lions and eating honey and giving it to everybody and stealing people's clothes and paying off debts and, and making, killing a thousand people and, and making a joke, standing there covered in blood and guts and brains and, and piles of dead people everywhere and, and says, well, I, I've got the jawbone of a donkey here and I've really made a donkey out of everybody and look at these bunch of donkeys. He just hasn't taken anything seriously. Now, the sermon's tough on, on Samson, and I'm sorry, not sorry, but the sermon's tough on Samson. Let, let me ask those of you who are God's people so, some tough questions this morning. How long have you been calling upon the Lord? For me, I'm going on 49 years. How long have you been calling upon the Lord? Anybody? 56? 57? Anybody else? 33? That's a good run. 20? Two decades. That's a long time. How long have you been calling upon the Lord? In those years that you've been calling upon the Lord, have you been transformed? By the Spirit of God? Or are you the same self-centered person that you were when you came to faith? Are you the same person or have you been transformed? Let me ask it maybe in a different way. Is your life basically about doing what you want to do? Is that basically what life looks like for you this morning, child of God? You get up and you do basically what you want to do. Is that the definition of the life you're living? And is that the definition of the life God has called you to live? I'll say this to you this morning. God's very long-suffering. This I know. He is waiting for you to turn to Him. He's waiting for you to live up to your full potential that you have in Christ. I do believe this. I believe every person in this room is special to God. I believe you have a purpose. I believe you have a spiritual vocation. I believe God has a plan for your life. I believe he, you are fearfully, you are uniquely, you are wonderfully made. You, you are an incredible individual and you are special to God. And because God is incredibly long-suffering and because God is mission-focused, God's people cannot fail. This world is dependent on you succeeding. This world needs to be evangelized, discipled, enlightened, preserved by God's people. You're essential to the story just as Samson and Abraham and Moses and these other people are. And we don't often see that we're essential to the story. You're incredibly essential to the story. You have to live up to your potential in the same way I'm frustrated with Samson that he's not living up to his potential. And you say, well, I'm broken and I'm not qualified. And if you knew about my past, are you hearing the story that I'm telling? The dude God called to deliver Israel is down at the prostitute house and God's still going to work through this man. You say, but God doesn't work through broken people. You've been told a lie. The only kind of people God uses are broken people because that's the only kind of people there are. Is sinners 
who've been saved and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I would like it if I were more holy and, and, and a better person, and I think we would all say that. But yeah, God uses broken people too. And God's using this broken Samson to be his deliverer. And, and God's long-suffering. And here's what I know about Samson. He may be able to tear the gates off the city with his bare hands, but he is powerless to control his desire for pagan women. That's the story of Samson. And you say, well, you know, what a lush. Well, we've all got our thing. We've all got our thing, don't we? We all have some sins we struggle with. What's weird about this is when you read these stories, their sins are just put out there in black and white for all of us to look at. And it's kind of embarrassing, right? It's, I'm embarrassed for Samson. Aren't you glad that our sins aren't put out there for the next generations to read? No, we want to be like the writer of Hebrews. These are the heroes of faith. Want our sins to be covered by the blood and our story told in a faith perspective. Well, let's move to the next setting. Here's the spy who loved me. Not. Judges 16.4. Now, the, that episode's over. The writer switches scenes. Prostitute story, gate's over. Okay, now new scene. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The valley of Sorek is in enemy territory. And Delilah is a Philistine. The problem is not that he loved a woman. I hope you all fall in love. I hope you all find love. The, the problem is not that this man fell in love. The problem is the type of person he fell in love with. And if you understand the story, he's intentionally seeking out women who are enemies of God's people. This is what's twisted about the story of Samson. He's intentionally seeking out women. In the story now, this is like the fourth Philistine woman that he has hooked up with. And now he falls in love with someone named Delilah. Now in your head and in your heart, at this point of the telling of the story, you should be in your heart saying, Samson, dude, get it together. Man, you are 40 years old. You, your life is being wasted. Your potential is being squandered. Grow up and be the leader God wants you to be. Man, grow up and deliver Israel from the enemy. Dude, grow up and lead them to victory. Dude, grow up and restore the worship of God in the Holy Land. Samson, you're special. Live up to your vocation. Live up to your potential. You're God's image bearer, man. Right here is about where you should be getting under conviction. Because you also feel at times when you hear this story that you're looking in the mirror. And you get glimpses of your own life through the mirror of Samson's life. And all of us can see time wasted. You ever wasted any time? Yeah. I think all of us have wasted a little time with the chasing Philistines and living in enemy territory and doing all the things we shouldn't have been doing and pursuing things that are frivolous and, and wasting time. Listen, sometimes you get glimpses through the life of Samson in that mirror and you see yourself and you're wondering, am I just a rebellious youth in an adult body? Because in your mind, you're still a youth. 
You look in the mirror and you see the adult and you're like, am I just that devious, rebellious person? I, but now I'm in an adult body. We want to be God's people. Here's the conflict we're in. We just don't want to listen to God. We want to be God's people, but we want to run our own lives. This is the conflict of every Christian. You've given your life to Christ. You've called him Lord, but now you want to take the controls and run your own life. This is the conflict of every believer. And this is Samson's conflict, and it's going to call you to have to address your own conflict this morning. But for Samson's sake, we're all sitting back as judges this morning, and we're saying, dude, grow up. You're an adult now. It's time to embrace God's mission for your life. You need to yield control and be who God has called you to be. The name Delilah is another riddle. I told you there's all kinds of double entendre and wordplay in the book of Judges. And the name Delilah is yet another riddle because it means flirtatious. Her name means flirt. So, Samson, it's not the worst name. It means sunshine. And a girl named Delilah, it's not the worst name in the world, but it means flirtatious. And so when you take old sunshine who loves Philistine women and flirtatious and you put them in the same county, they're going to find each other. That's all I'm saying. And they did find each other in the valley of Sorek. And when the Philistines see, because they're watching, and I just want to say this to you, the enemy's watching. And when the enemy's watching how we live our lives, the enemy knows where Samson is. They can't do anything about him because he's too powerful for them. But they see now he's fallen for Delilah. And when the enemy sees that, uh, that he's smitten with Delilah, the leaders of the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines, approach Delilah privately and they say, we want to turn you as a spy. We have a proposition for you. And they come to her with a clandestine offer of espionage. And they say to her, if you will spy for us and tell us the source of this guy's strength so that we can get subdue him and torture him and kill him if you give us the secret of his strength we will pay you an astronomical exorbitant amount of coin we will dump a houseload of silver coins on you if you can somehow figure out how to spy and set a trap for this guy it's a classic honeypot trap being set okay if you like spy stories here's one for you so she agrees to become a spy for her country and uh, she engages in this romance with Samson and immediately starts trying to uncover the secret of his strength. Judges 16.6 So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And Samson answered her, now he's clever, he's a riddler. He's like, well, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, I will become weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him up with those bowstrings, with men hidden in the room. She called to him, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. Poink! Just like that. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Now, if you read that with no knowledge of the Nazarite vow, you're going to miss a lot of things here. 
So let me just fill in the blanks. The ancient bowstrings are made from animal tendons. Do you remember the Nazarite vow from two weeks ago? You're not allowed to touch any dead body, nothing dead like that. And now he's telling her, tie me up with dead body parts and I'll be powerless as, as anybody out. It was a violation of his Nazarite vow before God. And you say, well, what about that? Yeah, what about that? He doesn't seem to care. What about that? What about that? He doesn't care that he's special to God. He doesn't care about his vows to God. He's not taking, taken seriously the fact that he is special at 40 years of age. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? I'm afraid some of you are not taking seriously that God has a plan for your life and you are special to him and you're now in your late 20s or 30s or 40s. Wake up. You are special to God. Embrace his purpose for your life. Samson's not taking it seriously. Wake up, wake up, boink, snaps him like it's just, you know, a piece of thread. I want to shout to Samson at this point in the story and say, Samson, wake up. This is not love. This is not love. She is an enemy agent engaged in espionage. They want you dead. This is not love. She's making monetary gain off of trying to get your secret. She's going to come rich over getting the secret out of you. This is not love. Love is not about besting your opponent. Love is not about manipulation or selfish interests. That is not love. The Bible gives you some beautiful examples of what love is. One of the things that's I want to bring out in this message is I want to just challenge our young adults to be able to distinguish what love is versus what love is not. When you know what love is, then you'll know if someone loves you. Then you'll know if you love someone. Paul talked a little bit about love in 1 Corinthians 13. He said love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud, does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. Love always protects. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. But Samson doesn't understand what love is all about. He's acting like life is one big playground. And he's playing a deadly, deadly game with Delilah. You see, he desired her because she was a Philistine. She was exciting precisely because she was forbidden. And because she was forbidden to him as God's deliverer, that's why she was so exciting for him it sounds like I'm talking about a 16 year old doesn't it he's like a young adult raised in the home of Orthodox Baptists or Church of Christ or Pentecostals he is rebelling he's pursuing what is forbidden because it stirs the passions of his life what's forbidden is fun what's forbidden is exciting 
but he doesn't understand what love is and he doesn't understand in Delilah and these Philistines and these idols and these demons behind the idols, he's playing with the deadly viper. God has called him to be special. He was to deliver Israel from the idolaters, but his worldview was all about pleasure, doing whatever you want to do, having a good time, live life on your own terms, do as you please. There are no boundaries. There's no morals. There's no black and white. There's no right and wrong. Just do whatever you want to do. Judges 16, verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, you made a fool out of me. You lied to me. You, 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 you beast. Come now. Quit doing that. Tell me how you can be tied. He said, well, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes. You see, the problem is they're using old ropes. If anybody would use new ropes that have never been used, I'll become weak as any other man. Who who thinks this stuff up? Okay. Now, listen, uh, Samson loves to be tied up, and he's very clever. He comes up with all kinds of variations on the theme, okay? And so he said, well, if you use new ropes that have never been used, I'll be as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. With men hidden in the room. Listen, I have so many questions that the author does not answer. If you sometimes feel internal dissatisfaction with the text, I'm with you. Okay? I want questions. I want answers to my questions. How is it that Samson's making love with Delilah in a room filled with other people and they never know they're there? Until she starts saying, the Philistines are here, and that's the secret word. And people come out of tunnels and rope down from the roof and come up through the air conditioner vents. And suddenly, yeah, I don't get it. But anyway, it's the story I've got to preach. So here it is. And uh, so, uh, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And he snapped the ropes off of his arms as if they were thread. (laughs) You say, well, then what? Well, then he whipped the living fire out of the Philistines. Probably killed them all. I don't think it was a good scolding he gave them. They're in his boudoir secretly. I think it was death he gave them. This is a really weird story. Verse 13, then Delilah said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me, behind me, fake tear. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, well, if you were to weave the seven braids of my head, into the fabric of a loom and tied it with the pin, I'd be as weak as anybody else. You're like, what is going on? Well, you learn a lot of things. Samson obviously has this long hair, right? It's tied in seven braids. That's what you just learned. He's got dreads, seven, okay? That's one thing you just learned. And he said, you see that weaver's loom over there where you make fabric? If you weave my hair into the loom, like you're weaving fabric and secure it with the pin and my head's in the loom, I'm as weak as anybody else. That's the, you're like, if, now if I'm Delilah, I'm just calling baloney right there. That's just, that's just way out. That, you know, that don't even sound right. But he's like, no joke. If you just weave my hair into the fabric, I'm, I'm docile as a, as a little kitten. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head and wove them Okay, now I just want to ask another question right here because it may just be me at this point. Can anybody sleep while somebody's weaving your hair into fabric? I don't, I, and I'm just reading between the lines. I'm not trying to do disservice to the text, but I feel like there's a lot of alcohol involved here. I, I'm just saying because as I read this, and I'm being now serious, funny serious, but 
I feel like there's a lot of margaritas in Philistine land. Because somehow he gets sleepy being in her company all the time and falls asleep and people are coming into the room. He's passed out. He don't even know what's happening. And she's weaving his hair into the loom. She tightened it with the pin. And then she got ready for the code word because there's guys hidden in the room, soldiers. I don't know where, under the bed, how, but here they come. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke from sleep and he pulled the pin, the loom, and the fabric right out of the thing. Now here's Samson standing with dreadlocks and a whole fabric and a a shawl and a a yarn and, and just all hanging off of his head, just killing Philistines like crazy. It's the strangest story you've ever read in your life. But I want to say this to you at this point in the story. With the mention of his hair, he's getting really close to telling her, isn't he? Do you feel that coming? If you didn't already know the story, you would feel something's about to happen here. Because it's just been this and this and this. And then he said, no, it's not about tying me up. It really has to do with my hair. He's getting really close now. She's wearing him down. The old girl's a good spy. KGB's best, man. And here she's she going to work. Uh, uh, now, let me just say a few things to you. With the mention of his hair, he's so close to breaking the last part of his vow. Now, I want to have you look at the whole story I've told for two, two different sermons now. He's already broken every part of his vow, except for the cutting of his hair. It's the only part of his vow that remains. Which... Leads me to want to ask you a question this morning. What's the status of your relationship with God? Where are you this morning with your relationship with God? I think for many Bible readings, ancient history, long gone. I think with many people, that daily time of prayer ceased years ago. Except when you're in a crisis, of course. What's the status of your relationship with God? Consistently dedicating and giving a portion of your income to the Lord as an act of worship. Where are you at on that? I think for many families, it's no longer a priority in the family budget that God comes before mortgage. You you hear what I'm saying, right? God comes before GMAC and Ford Motor Credit. God comes before... Visa and MasterCard and the gym membership and Netflix and YouTube. And God comes before my addiction to Amazon and your addiction to Amazon. It's the new crack, you know what I'm saying? Uh, If you were just to look at your bank statement through the eyes of, can I see my Christianity in my bank statement? You took a highlighter and just started highlighting Christian expenses on your bank statement, how would God rate? I'm I'm just throwing out some things this morning. Maybe you've distanced yourselves from relationships in the church. You're an attender, but you're not related. You're not connected in relationships to God's people. Maybe you've been saved all of your life, but you've never taken seriously God's command to make disciples. Maybe you've been saved all of your life and you've never been discipled. 
intentionally by someone. And maybe attending church today is all that remains of your dedication to God. I'm not criticizing you. I'm here to encourage you. And I'm here to say, if church attendance is all you have left, okay. It's something. It's something. It's a, it's a starting place. It's a connection to the holy things and the holy people and the holy God. And if all you have left this morning is church attendance, then use this one part of your vow that remains holy still and use this as a way back to a deeper relationship with God in the coming days. Above all things, don't cut your hair. You hear what I'm saying? If church attendance is all that's left of your walk with God, then please do not forsake this. If you're not in discipleship and you don't dedicate your wealth to the Lord and you don't pray and you don't read your... Okay, fine. But at least you're here this morning. And I'm saying it not critically, in a positive way. Use this and hold on to this. And don't give this away to the world too. At least hold on to this. Because in this, maybe this is a beginning for you. A new start, a fresh start. Stay engaged here with us until you can give, until you can pray, until you can read and get something from the Word of God. Stay here engaged with us until you can develop a relationship that will lead to discipleship. Stay connected to God. And if church attendance is what you got, then hold on to it. And I mean that with all seriousness. Stay with what remains and don't walk away. Hold fast to the voice of God. If this is the only time you hear the voice of God in your week for this hour and a half on a Sunday morning, then please hear the voice of God for an hour and a half every week. It's something. And it's a place to be a foundation to grow from. Then she said to him, verse 15, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? Well, evidently, Samson had told her three words, hadn't he? Delilah, I love you. Samson doesn't even know what love is. Delilah is not in love. Delilah is about to get rich. And Delilah is about to deliver her people from God's people, from God's deliverer. Delilah is about to make a payday. And so she bats those eyelashes and she says, Listen, how are you saying I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and you haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Watch the narrator kick in right here. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was... Say it out loud. Now isn't that just classic Bible right there? She nagged at him until he was sick to death of it. I'm sick to death of this nagging woman. Yeah. Now, he loves her because she's forbidden fruit. This is all very exciting. Now, he's playing a game. This is fun to him. This is exciting to him. She's batting her eyelashes and squeezing out a fake tear. She's not upset. This is exciting. 
This is espionage. This is like the best spy novel you've ever read. She's she's squeezing out a fake tear and batting her eyelashes and pretending to be heartbroken. And he's got the weaver's loom in his hair and killing people. It's, It's big fun. Big fun for adults. Live life on your own terms. It's big fun. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. And if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become weak as any other man. Now I want to make a fine point right here. I want you to remember that his hair is not the source of his strength. God is the source of his strength. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he did. And the Spirit of God was upon him when he was evidently very young, maybe at conception. God is the source of his strength, not his hair. His hair, his uncut Hair was a symbol of his relationship to God in a Nazarite vow of the Old Testament. Now I want to make a fine point with you. Sometimes we get hung up on the symbols. The real problem in here is not a haircut. The real problem here is he doesn't acknowledge he's special to God. His relationship with God is the problem, not a haircut. But now he's told her everything and his hair was the only thing that remained of God's call upon his life. It's the last evidence that he's special. And to cut his hair would be to say, I don't care that I'm special. I don't care about my relationship with God. Uh, God is not my priority now. I'm a young man. I'm living my life. I'm fine to chase my dreams. God's not my priority. I just want to live in this world full of excitement. The story continues. Verse 18, And when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, She sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. The dead drop happened and they got the message and the message said, come now, bring the cash. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. And after putting him to sleep on her lap, I have so many questions. Margarita machine was rented again. I don't know. I can see her stroking his hair, his head's on her lap and He's passed out asleep again. She called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. And then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and he thought, been there, done this before. Watch what happens now. I'll go out before and shake myself free. But here's the saddest statement in the whole story. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. How sad to know that the Lord had left him. Can you think of anything more terrifying than to be in the hands of enemies and know that God has left you? That God has withdrawn from you and you are alone. And the enemies of God are mocking you and they're mocking God because of you. And here's what we learn. Sunshine is in darkness. Verse 21, then the Philistines seized him and they gouged out his eyes and they took him to Gaza and they bound him with bronze shackles 
and they set him to grinding grain in the prison. So now they've gouged out his eyes, and the man who's named Sunshine will never see the sunshine again. He's blind. His eyes are destroyed. They take him like an animal and tie him to the grinding post, and he's pushing a grist mill in circles in a flour mill, and they take a whip and they crack it across his back. Grind for us, Samson. Grind for you. are just a big beast. Grind for us and make us food. Honestly now, for those who are living calling your own shots, does the life you're living now bring you joy? Do you look forward to the possibilities that each day brings? Or do you dread what the week has in store? Sunshine is now blinded. He's defeated. Around and round he walks like a donkey. A lot of irony in this story. And like a donkey, he's just walking in circles, grinding, making flour, making food to make the enemies of God stronger so that they can persecute God's people. What irony is in this story? The strong creates food. Out of the lion came forth food. Oh, there's so much irony in in all of this telling. Now they're laughing, they're mocking Samson, and they're saying, Ha ha, where's his God? Our idol God has defeated his God. And then with one sentence, the author gives us a glimmer of hope. That God's not finished. Watch how simple this sentence is. But the hair on his head began to grow. That's intended to raise a little spark of hope in your heart right there. Grinding, grinding, grinding. P.S. But his hair's growing, growing, growing. Something's about to happen, isn't it? Yeah, I sense that. So the Philistines decide to have a celebration. They all gather in a coliseum for a big worship service. It's exactly what it is. And they're singing worship songs to their demonic idol. Let me just read it for you. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate. And here's what they're saying. Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, Samson, come out in chains, blinded, beaten, defeated, they praised their God, saying... Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands. The one who laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. All right, it's payback time now because our God has won. Now, I just want you just, I know this would never be true of you, but I just want to throw this out there. Can you imagine a demonic worship service breaking out because you failed to live up to your divine vocation? Can you imagine living your life this week, however you want to live it, as if you're not a child of God, and the demons around you praising Satan and praising that, you know how twisted that is? Because they're watching God's people fall and watching God's people fail and watching God's people live just like the world and having their nice celebration in their demonic way. Verse 27, now the temple was crowded with men and women and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Be tortured is another way of reading this. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. I don't know that I've ever read those words. 
Then Samson prayed to the Lord. How long has it been, ladies and gentlemen? He said, I just, I feel embarrassed now to call out to him because he won't hear me. He's mad at me. Then you don't know our God very well. He's waiting for you to call out to him. And he's right here this morning ready to talk to you. Samson in his pathetic condition is much worse than anything you've ever lived. And yet Samson in this moment, chained between the pillars and the temple of Dagon, with thousands and thousands of people leading a worship service to demons, in the middle of that, Samson bows his head and says, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. Let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistine from my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. I don't know how to feel right now. And I'm being very honest with you. This is a story where you laugh and you cry and you feel empty inside. I don't know how to feel. The great hero is a victim of his own choices. He's empowered for one final act of deliverance. And it's an act that will clearly take his own life. And that is his prayer. Lord, let me die now with your enemies. And he becomes one of many Hear what I'm saying now, everyone. Don't tune me out. He becomes one of many people in the Bible who commit suicide. He's not alone in this. There are several. And almost all of them have a common theme. When things are absolutely hopeless, when it appears you're about to be tortured to death, Saul and Jonathan are about to be taken by the Philistines before David delivers the nation. And they're injured in battle and even, you know, King Saul says to his sword bearer, kill me right now. I'm injured. I'm going to die. They're going to capture me. They're going to mutilate me. That's what they do in these days. Don't let them mutilate me. Go ahead and kill me. The armor bearer won't. He falls on his own sword. Things like this are all in your Bible. And I want to say just a couple of things before we go this morning about, about this. I don't know if we talk about mental illness and hopelessness and suicide enough. And maybe we should dedicate some special time to that. Uh, a man who's been attending church here for, I guess, a month now, uh, during the month of April. He'd been fairly steady here with us. He committed suicide uh, last week. And uh, his name's James Smith. If you're here on Wednesday nights in mom's class, then you met James. If you worshiped here the last month on Sundays, you've sh- shaken his hand. He sat right next to you. And uh, Alan and, and Matt, I, I really appreciate you guys loving him. And, and he was troubled. And he was wrestling with a lot of things. And uh, we, we tried. And he took his own life. There are people around you that are hurting. Desperately. They're in situations they cannot get themselves out of. They don't know what to do. Some are struggling with incredible physical pain that doctors cannot find answers to. 
Some people are struggling with mental illness. Some people are struggling with heartbreak and relational problems. Listen, and all of us are struggling with our own sin. And don't often know what to do with that except bring it to Jesus. Just a word to God's people. Be aware of the people around you. Another word to God's people, I would say to you this. Don't, don't be hopeless. God is a God of hope. And part of the reason I want to talk about Samson, because I've never met a person so messed up as this guy. He's as messed up as they come. But yet he has faith. And he's one of God's people. And even as pastor, I don't always know how to reconcile the story of Samson and even give it a good telling because it's such a messed up thing. But I want to say to you, don't be hopeless because there is hope in Jesus Christ. And suicide is the product of hopelessness when you cannot see a way forward into tomorrow. I want you to know that there is always a way forward with Jesus Christ. Now, some religions teach that if you commit suicide, you don't go to heaven. That's patently false. Heaven and hell are determined by your faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. Okay? You say, well, then I'm free to take my life. No, you're not. No more than Samson's free to chase Philistine prostitutes. He's not a role model in this. No, if he had done a million other things right, he wouldn't be doing this now. Okay? What I want to say to you is this, life is sacred. You can't create life, God creates life. And because God, this is an ancient Christian teaching now. That's 2,000 years old, this is not a modern thing. Life is sacred because only God can give it. And because God is the author of life, you are not allowed to take life lightly. Life is precious, it's sacred, it's holy. Don't harm yourself. There's hope in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. There's hope in Jesus Christ for a fresh start. Okay, I, I'm done and we're at the end. So let me, let me wrap. It's hard. It's a difficult ending to a difficult story. We're left at the end of the story with conflicted emotions. And I hope you feel that tension in your own heart this morning. Is Samson a good guy or a bad guy? Yes. But ultimately, he was a man of faith who did have a relationship with the Lord, however messed up it was, and did call upon the Lord and did have the Spirit of God working in his life. And the author of the sermon in Hebrews looks back and said, I'd love to tell you this whole story. Whoo, what a doozy. But here is an example of faith. Now, let's make it all personal as we go home, okay? You may have heard God's voice at some point in your youth like Samson. And you may have said to God in your earlier years, yes, Lord, I will be special to you. Yes, Lord, I will live for you. Yes, Lord, I will be your people. And since then, your life has taken some turns and you've pursued self-interest and God has not been a priority in your life. I want to be very clear with what I'm saying to you this morning. You have not missed God's will for your life. You're still alive, right? Then there's still a chance to get back on track. 
So many times as a child coming from my background, they taught, well, if you make a bad mistake, we're done with you. You're out of the church. You've missed God's will for your life. You haven't read the Old Testament. God's still using Samson right up to the moment of his death. You have not missed God's will for your life. The question is, are you ready to stop being self-interested and start being God-centric in your life? Maybe you've lost hope because you've made so many mistakes or you've let some things pile up in your walk and you're like, okay, it's just hopeless now. I can't get back to God. No, that's not true at all. One invitation of repentance is, you're, is as close as you are to being right back restored with God. You realize you're a prayer of repentance away from being in a, back restored in a relationship with God. Let hope fill your heart that there's a fresh start. Why not engage with God now, today? What, what's stopping you this morning from re-engaging with God? He is more powerful than all of your bad choices. Sure, you've made bad decisions. We all have. But God hasn't gone anywhere. God is still here. And by faith, we are still His people. And, and, and listen, our bad decisions are not final. We wish we hadn't made it, but okay. Here's where we are. Let's re-engage with God and renew our walk with God. And we are special to God because we are His People by faith. Samson loved a joke. Man, he could turn a clever phrase. But in the end, the jokes were on him. He was bold before men, but he was weak before women. He was called to declare war on the enemies of God, and yet he fraternized with those enemies who hated God. He fought the Lord's battles by day, and he broke all of the Lord's commandments by night. His name speaks of light, and he ends his story in darkness. I would have never thought that Jephthah would have turned out right. I never would have thought Samson, born into an Israelite family who loved God, would have turned out wrong. But the way a person's life turns out is not just about parentage, it's about choices. And it's time for us to make a few right now. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. In the stillness of this moment, I'm going to ask you to look into your heart and be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Uh, there, there are three people occupying your chair this morning. Listen carefully. There are three people sitting where you sit. The person you could be for God. the person you'll become away from God and the person you are right now. There's three potentials in your seat right now. Who you are, who you can become if you'll re-engage with God or who you'll become if you keep going away from God. It's very simple this morning. You have to decide which one of those you want to be. That's all. Status quo, just stay the person you are. Keep going away from God. See what happens. Or make this a moment of re-engagement and repentance this morning and turn to God with all your heart. Listen, if you're ready this morning, 
You feel God stirring your heart and Holy Spirit speaking to you. Why, why not use this moment to cry out to God and say, God, please hear me. God, please give me a fresh start. God, I'm ready to live for you. I don't care how long you've been away and I don't care what you've done because I know our God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. He's a God of hope. And if you need a fresh start, there is hope for a fresh start right here, right now, in Jesus Christ. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, you can pray where you're at. You want to come and kneel at an altar and sometimes the change in posture is good for our decision making you just feel free to do whatever you need to do right now while Christians are re-engaging with God and refreshing our walk with God there may be some here who are not born again you, you've never prayed and asked Jesus to come into your heart and save you the Bible says for all have sinned we're all sinners. But God loves us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on the cross to pay your sin debt, to restore you into a relationship with God. And you can access that forgiveness by asking Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life this morning. By putting your faith in him and calling upon him to be your Lord. Give him your life this morning and he'll give you a fresh start. If you've never done that, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this. Dear Jesus, I confess to you this morning that I'm a sinner. I know you know that, but I want to say to you, I acknowledge my sinfulness before you. And Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I believe you lived a perfect life. You died on the cross in my place. You were buried and you rose again to be my victorious Savior. Right now, Jesus, I commit my life to you. I want to be a part of your family and your kingdom, and I want to be special to you. I want to live out my divine vocation in your kingdom, making disciples. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Be my Lord and Savior from this moment. I ask your forgiveness in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I wish you would let someone know, a neighbor, a friend, one, one of our workers, me, anyone, just extend a hand and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer today to receive Christ as my Savior. We just want to pray with you. We're so proud of you. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. That's a tough message from Samson. Hits us right in our heart, right where we live. It's really a challenge to all of us to go and be consistent and live out our vocation before God. We were talking about hope. I'm going to give you a benediction of hope this morning. Paul was writing to the church of Rome, the European Christians, and these are the words he said to them. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and with peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that your life would overflow with hope 
this week.